0: I've, I've not seen any listings of the voice cast, I've not looked that up, I have to agree that that was slack work on my part. Hello and welcome
1: to episode 24 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. I'm Lee Ford and as ever... I'm Andy Meakin. Uh, and welcome to another week. We are just coming towards the end of lockdown here in the UK. Well, when they say the end of lockdown, Lord knows what that means, because I'm sure it'll change in the next couple of days. And
0: uh, It basically means that everyone can flock out to Primark to get themselves some clean knickers.
1: Yeah, the day we record this is the 15th, is so this is the day that everything apparently changes. Uh, apparently there's a sequel on their way, potentially could be uh, Lockdown 2.
0: Electric Boogaloo. <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> that would be the canon film version <laughs> um, but pretty much we are keeping going we've got uh, an interesting show for you lots of news uh, we're looking at a deep dive into the works of wes anderson particularly rushmore andy will be telling me his thoughts on ben affleck's the town and of course we'll have a neat thing But first, Andy, the news. What have you got for
0: us? At the moment, the cinemas in China were set to reopen, but the cinemas in Beijing are going to remain shut because they've had their first new cases of corona in nearly two months.
1: I feel like not only are we helping the film industry with the podcast, we are... Uh, we're also like a, a public information <laughs> access to everything you need to know about what's
0: happening in the world. Well, it, it's because all this is having a huge impact. I mean, if the if the cinemas in Beijing remain shut, it sets the rest of China's cinemas a bit wary about reopening. Because the, the new case that they've had in Beijing was of a resident who hasn't even left the city in the past few weeks. So there's concern that there's multiple carriers still traveling around and the whole of China, could very well go back into another full lockdown.
1: Which, of course, has an impact on the rest of the film industry because China... Yeah,
0: because it's such a huge market. Um, If China doesn't open its cinemas, then let's be honest, Mulan's not going to be opening in late July. What does this mean
1: for Christopher Nolan's Tenant?
0: Well, we know that they've already said that if Tenant, Tenant can't open in one country, it's not opening anywhere until everyone's ready. And up until now, it was slated for a 17th of July release. They've confirmed over the past week that they have moved it to 31st of July. Okay. So they're giving it that extra couple of weeks to hopefully things will get back to normal. And instead, on the 17th of July, Warners are going to drop Inception because it's the 10th anniversary of the film coming out.
1: Clever move. and it's But of course, when we talk about them dropping tenant and, and the changing of the dates, this of course will have a wave of other films' release dates being changed because of that.
0: Well, all of the Warner Brothers slate got announced in the same day as having pretty much moved. Wonder Woman 84 has shifted from October, August to October. Matrix 4 is now 2022 instead of next year. And pretty much everything in, the, in between, with the exception of June, has moved. June is the only one that has retained its current pre-Christmas release date. Godzilla vs. Kong, which was supposed to be in November this year, is now early summer next year. There's
1: not even been a trailer for that, has there?
0: No. Um, so the whole lot of the Warner slate, except for June, has shifted. Um, Universal, as a result of all the shufflings, have moved the Tom Hanks BIOS from October to next April. Bill & Ted has moved to where Wonder Woman 84 was originally positioned, which was August the 14th, so that's coming out earlier. And Gerard Butler's um, Greenland moves from July the 31st. No Time to Die, in addition, is coming out a week earlier in the US. It was already coming out earlier in the UK anyway, so it doesn't affect us here. But over in the US, they're getting it a week earlier than what it would have been.
1: And that was the first film, really, if you think about it. That was the first film that got moved. because
0: Yeah, that, that was the one that was ready to land as everything shut down. Um, Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary, Get Back, has moved to August 2021. And everybody's talking about Jamie has shifted to early 2021. So the whole schedule is all juggling. The only people who have not really weighed in so far is Disney, who Mulan, like we we said at the start, is still set for the 24th of July. And I think they're waiting to see what happens with the Chinese market. If the Chinese cinemas do not open within the next two weeks, that will probably move.
1: So it's still pretty much all up in the air. You can fix these dates. All it takes is the announcement of of a second wave either here in the U.S., for it for yeah. it to change, my own plans. I was supposed to be working in the US next month. As as far as I know, even though it's not been official, I can basically wave that goodbye at this point, and uh, and hopefully it gets picked up for the for the year after. These are just, you know, uh, we we look at it every week, uh, and with some amount of optimism that we are hopeful that films will get released at a certain point, but we can only give you the information that we've got and we keep you in touch the best way we can. Of course, we'd like to be back in the cinemas. That and going out for a coffee, funny enough, are the things that I've missed the most. Going out for a coffee and going to the cinema, uh, and we still don't know, I'm assuming, you've not had the conversations yet, Andy, of what the world's going to look like when we go back to the cinema.
0: We kind of do now. Oh, that's good. We are currently ramping up for... The original tenant release date to be open by then, which is now for Inception's 10th anniversary release. So all the plans are coming into place. It's not going to be the same kind of environments that we are used to. And we pride pride ourselves at the cinema that I work at that we're a social cinema. We're not like your mega blockbuster cinemas. We're not a huge multiplex. We like to keep it friendly, personable. We're we're fans of film as, as well as you guys, and it's a nice, comfortable environment. It's going to be a bit of a sanitised environment, which is expected. There'll be, you know, we're looking at barriers, perspex barriers between the tills. We're going to do um, card-only payments, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are what the industry of cinemas are going to be looking at. And it is going to feel like a strange environment. You will just be literally coming in just to watch a film. And
1: that's going to be the new normal. Uh, and we've got to get used to the fact this is the new normal. The main thing that, that horrifies me out of what you've just said in that that Andy is uh it's 10 years since inception came out how fast that's flown i can't believe it
0: and because inception is getting its 10 year anniversary in july it made me suddenly realize that nolan's got this thing about everything all of his films have to get released in july did dunkirk come out in july guess what 21st of july 2017 it must
1: be his lucky month
0: so he, he's got this thing about july and tenet's coming out on the 31st of july it still keeps his lucky month I think you'll probably have heart palpitations if he has to get ch- toward towards August.
1: Yeah, I wonder if he'll push it back a year till next July. We shall see. What else have you got for us, Andy?
0: You can't have missed all the news of like various shows and things getting pulled off services this week. But, yeah, th- there's the British comedies were getting pulled off uh, streaming services because of the uh, use of blackface, etc. But uh, in addition, the classic film Gone with the Wind, which we've spoken about before when I finally got around to watching it. And it is a problematic film. HBO Max pulled it.
1: I got a lot of mixed feelings on this, and I don't know if if um, the show is, the, is a forum to express this. I don't like, for exactly the reasons we, we've talked about uh, and that are prominent, I don't like Gone with the Wind. And um, I think, yes, it's a, it's a great piece of, a, of American filmmaking from a period. I do think it's problematic, and I always have. Uh, I'm a great believer in not in in not censoring anything and everything should be available because you cannot debate anything if it, if it becomes unseen so there's a there's a there's a lot of points for another time to have a, a discussion over this uh and my some of my thoughts are things like pulling faulty towers
0: the thing with the faulty towers one is that they, they pulled it because of, in the episode, it's not because of the mocking of the Germans, it's because of the words used in his um, discussion of other ethnicities. And that version of it was only made available again recently, because when it was released on VHS, it was edited to remove that joke. And when it was released initially on DVD, it was edited to re- remove that joke. It was only about 10 years ago when they released another Legacy box set, and they put that older version which was unedited back in there but everyone's up in arms about it getting removed even though they've said that it's removed temporarily while they consider what they're going to do and i reckon it'll be they'll put the censored version in that removes that line there wasn't a kickoff when that line was removed last time people understood it but people are kicking off this time now we've gone with the wind people have been like up in arms about how dare they remove this classic film but hbo max Bob Greenblatt, the Warner's entertainment chairman, has said it was sort of a no-brainer. They have the best intentions, obviously. They don't regret taking it down for a second. They just wish that they hadn't put it up in the first place without a disclaimer on. Now, they don't just want to do what Disney have done, where they tag a disclaimer that you read. They want to do a short little face-to-face discussion thing. And luckily, HBO have a 2019 writers and producers panel, which was discussing that film's legacy, that they are going to edit to put before it as a little point of reference thing so the film can get put back on without any censorship without removing any scenes but give it some context behind it for those people who want that extra element to to it i'm i'm all for that idea i i agree with bob greenblatt that maybe they should have thought about doing this before they put it on the streaming service
1: i agree i agree entirely i think i think there has to be discussion
0: now interestingly since hbo pulled the film off their service uh, Amazon reported that it was suddenly rocketed up in sales for the DVD and Blu-ray. As a load of people who weren't that bothered with the film and didn't care and weren't, weren't ever probably going to watch it, suddenly decided to rush out and buy it just to make a point, you know, stick it to the man. It does seem strange that as soon as something gets pulled off a service, everyone's suddenly a huge fan, even if they were never bothered with it in the
1: past. And to say it's over 80 years old nearly, you know, it, it has been available yeah. on various formats for an awful long time.
0: Yeah, the whole environment of the world at the moment is very political at the moment. And you've got to love, did you see um, about the guy who tweeted Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine?
1: Oh, that he'd not been, uh, he, he was he was disappointed that Rage Against the Machine was so uh, political.
0: Yes, I saw he that. He was a huge fan of the band, but he's not going to listen to them anymore because he's so political on Twitter. It's like, you. what, what did you think the machine was that <laughs> they were raging against? Yeah,
1: the facts are in the uh, title there, folks. Don't be confused by it. Uh,
0: Absolutely marvellous. But, you know, Gone with the Wind has been temporarily removed. It's going to be put back on for valid reasons with a valid extra bit. And all the things that have been pulled elsewhere, I mean, people were kicking off that League of Gentlemen's gone from uh, Netflix. That's fine. It's on BritBox. It's, it's available on another service. It's not banned completely. The government hasn't banned anything. These private companies that host streaming services have decided not to stream something that's up to them there's
1: not going to be a book burning or there's not going to be a dvd fire as in uh, uh, as in previous times so so don't worry if you've still got a copy no one's going to be coming around to your house and taking it
0: and if you're such a huge fan of the property anyway surely you already own it yes anyway moving on speaking of disasters in the world Roland Emmerich. <laughs> he's about to,
1: even, about to inflict another one on us.
0: Uh, well, you know, he's tackled alien invasions, environmental climate change, Mayan prophecies. Yeah, he loves demolishing the planet. For me, he is this generation's Erwin Allen. He's now going one step further, and he's throwing the moon at us. His next film is called Moonfall, and the moon gets knocked from orbit and is set to smash into the Earth. And there's just a few weeks before the impact... And a team are set to land on the moon and save the world. This sounds very Armageddon.
1: It sounds like a cross between Armageddon and When Worlds Collide. And to some extent, um, the Mayan Prophecy 2012 was a little bit When Worlds Collide.
0: Yeah, we love the effects work that he puts into his films, but he's pretty dumb when it comes to plot lines. Um, Let's be honest, he's only come up with the moon because the moon affects the tides. And um, we all know how much he loves doing his tidal waves, smashing into the coastlines. But we know what we're
1: going to get with a Roland Emmerich film. And and they are almost a, a throwback to to the 70s. Uh, as I said, <laughs> Irwin Allen movies, big star names, big spectacle, huge effects, lots of destruction. Towering Inferno, earthquakes, Absolutely. And there's, there's an element <laughs> of escapism about it. Who's the cast? Has anybody been announced yet?
0: Patrick Wilson and Charlie Plummer are playing father and son with... Halle Berry and Josh Gad round out the team who are sent on this mission. Because obviously, whenever you're going to send like a rocket to the moon to save the day, it has to be a ragtag group of unlikely people to lumber together. I can take or leave Roland Emmerich Films. 2012 outstayed its welcome. They all do a little bit, don't they? It was too long. Uh, it's, it's all the ones, I mean, things like Day After Tomorrow, I quite enjoy. And I think it just about holds up. And obviously, I mean, Independence Day wow yeah. let's
1: film. forget about the sequel
0: we'll ignore the sequel but you know like you say we know what to expect from it it's just going to be the moon's gravitational pull causes loads of world disasters that's the spectacle to kick off the film and then it'll just be armageddon so to speak and that that's the film it'll be armageddon only without bruce willis on a big screen uh, with the tears in his eyes what else do we have david fincher
1: He's been quiet for some years.
0: He has. Gone Girl in 2014 with his last film. Well, his next film is coming to Netflix in October. Is that
1: down to uh, scheduling issues?
0: No, this this has been a Netflix production. It's titled *Mank* and it's penned by Fincher's late father, Jack Fincher. And it's a black and white biopic of Herman J. Mankowitz, the writer of Citizen Kane. Gary Oldman, Tom Burke, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, and Tom Palfrey are all starring in there. And... Um, because it, it's a, a black and white biopic, low-key kind of film, it was always a Netflix
1: production. And he embraced very early on with, with House of Cards. He embraced Netflix as, as the medium.
0: He did, yeah. He's, he's been there pretty much since Netflix was starting to make a name for themselves. I've not found a Fincher film yet that I've not enjoyed.
1: Benjamin Button is the, probably the lowest one on the list for me. I've loved the stuff that he's done on Netflix. Uh, House of Cards was very good mind hunter was an exceptional exceptional series um whether we're going to get a third series of that i don't know it's actually down to to fincher's scheduling as opposed to netflix not wanting to do it but yeah i'm I'm interested i'm a big fan of of the story behind citizen kane i know it was told in the uh, uh ridley scott produced uh tv movie about the rko which was great so yeah, I'm always open for another take on on the story of, of Citizen Kane's. It's because it's it's one of those. It's an amazing film, but there's an, an amazing behind the scenes.
0: That's something to look forward to in October. Again, with streaming Disney Plus, who've been dropping some of their planned cinematic releases, the lower key cinematic releases. Uh, well, the lower budget cinematic releases onto their service, started this week with Artemis Fowl.
1: Which they probably think they've dodged a bullet because I've not seen Artemis Fowl, but I've seen the reviews
0: for it. It's not good. I watched it and to think it's Kenneth Branagh who made that film, it doesn't look like it's got much of his touch on there. It looks like something's happened behind the scenes out of his hands. And it wouldn't surprise me if we start getting a hashtag release the Branagh cut (laughs) campaign going over this one. It's, It's a mess of a film. It's a mess of ideas, and the cast just seem very flat throughout, including Judy Dench, who sports the most atrocious Irish accent as um, one of the head people of the fairy folk. Oh, it, I, I don't know. I've not read the book, so I can't even compare it to the books. But based on that film, I've now got no intention of ever digging out the books.
1: I know nothing about the books. I uh, The young adult books I've, I left behind. When I was a young adult. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, next month they've got Hamilton, which is their stage show musical adaptation. So that's coming in early July. And now one of their animated films, The One and Only Ivan, which is a live action slash animation hybrid based on the award winning book by Catherine Applegate, that's going to go straight to Disney Plus in August, on August the 21st. Uh, The story behind that film is Ivan's a silverback gorilla who shares a habitat in a shopping mall with Stella the elephant and Bob the dog. He doesn't remember his early life as a child in the jungle and he's quite content with his life until a new baby elephant named Ruby gets brought across and starts talking about life in the wild and makes Ivan long to go back to the jungle.
1: Okay, so any indication on voice cast or any casting on this one?
0: Well, Ivan, the Silverback Gorilla is voiced by the ever great Sam Rockwell. We do
1: like Sam Rockwell. He's he's, he's one of those actors. He's just a joy we can watch in anything. Everything he does is always he's always a good centre point for it. Even if the rest of the film isn't great, there's there's always Sam Rockwell in it.
0: And um, for Stella the Elephants, I mean, if you want an elephant, you want someone big and huge, don't you? So Angelina Jolie. Yeah,
1: wouldn't have put those two together.
0: <laughs> uh, you've got Brian Cranston's in there. Helen Mirren is in there. Danny DeVito. You know, you've got some solid names within the cast there. It looks to me that Disney are trying to get one key film each month getting released on their streaming service to keep generating those subscriptions. Because, yeah, if there's going to be one film, one big hitter each month, then people are going to subscribe and stick around.
1: And what's the release date for this one?
0: So this is August the 21st. I'll keep watching. That keeps us going over the summer. Um, Oscars, there's been a good bit of Oscars news and Oscars buzz over this past week.
1: That's going to be interesting because there's no films for them to uh, to award.
0: <laughs> well, it's going to be Invisible Man all across the board, isn't it? With with Trolls Two getting all the other awards. Who would have
1: thought Trolls Two would have been best best <laughs> picture for 2020?
0: <laughs> the most the most influential film of the year. <laughs> um, well, the Oscars have been subject to quite a lot of criticism in recent years. And they've been reevaluating where they're going to go forward on this, and the biggest criticisms have obviously been around like the the spread of films and the diversity, uh, be it female directors, black directors, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very often referred to as the best picture lineup is like it's all white, it's all white, it's all white. Then we've took this criticism on board, and up until now, the best picture award allowed between five and ten films which meant that some years you'd get like just five in the Best Picture lineup, other years you'd get seven, eight, nine, and ten. Now they're going to specify that it's got to be ten films, which gives a chance for more films to get put forward for the Best Picture thing, which allows the opportunity for more diversity. Because whilst people have been saying diversity needs to be better in there, if they've only picked five films, what's to say those five films aren't the better of the
1: films? Yeah, you don't want a case of tokenism, and but you also yeah. don't want a case, and, and and the BAFTAs were certainly a victim of this, of, of the voting panel not being able to see certain films because a, they've not been sent them and they're going to watch the top, already considered yeah. the top five because of buzz, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, and missing out on a whole bunch of films.
0: Well, to assist with that, the... Academy is also implementing a quarterly viewing process, whereas it used to be once all the shortlists been done, they do all the screeners and they do reviewing. And then you've got like, everyone's got like a a two month period in which to watch everything and vote on it, which they're not going to do. Now each quarter, they're going to break up and take the key films that are probably going to get put forward and do them through their stream streaming screening rooms to all their academy members to broaden their exposure of films and also ensure that some films from earlier in the year Aren't forgotten when it comes to screeners' time.
1: Because half the problem is, is they're sending out, they're still sending out a disc to uh, academy voters as well, rather than yeah. even considering that you can do this, do this streaming now, which is not only a better option from from a cost point of view and also from a an ecology point of view, but it's a yep. better way of interacting with those offering an actual screening date where you can sit and watch this movie and monitor who's watching it as well.
0: Yeah, because. I mean, there's been the criticism in the past is like you've got some people who turn around and says, oh, well, they voted for this because they've not seen the other five films that are listed. It's like, well, sure, you shouldn't be voting if you've only seen one of those films. So a streaming system where they track what they've watched, that'd be the, the easiest way to make sure that they're being fair with the voting. Uh, In addition, there's some behind-the-scenes changes, such as the Board of Governors is getting shorter maximum terms. Up until now, they've been allowed to have a Board of Governors that stays on indefinitely until they die. Now, they're going to have a maximum of 12 years, but they only do three years, and then they have a break from it, and then they can go like reapply to go for another three years for a maximum of 12. Uh, Staff and committee members and governors, on an annual basis, will get bias training, and that will also be offered to the 9,000 members. And there'll also be a series of panels, one of them going to be run by Whoopi Goldberg, about race issues in, within the industry. So th- they're raising their own voters' and boards' awareness of the issues that they've been criticised for. And I think it's a really good positive step for the Oscars because they have taken a lot of flack over recent years, and they haven't, they haven't made the best of choices to avoid the criticism. When things like Green Book gets the best picture... And it's got its own internal issues about how truthful it was, and how it's like the white saviour kind of film. They're not helping themselves.
1: And also, let's take take note that the Baftas have really got a step up after the debacle that was the ceremony and awards this last year.
0: Yeah, it's a, it, it's a it's a big time of change for um, the awards. That will only affect the Oscars from 2022 onwards because obviously they've got to get all these things in place for next year's Oscars. They might be running late. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm surprised. They're deciding as we record today. They are the board of governors are having a meeting to discuss the possibility of postponing because they currently got the 28th of February next year as the date for the Oscars. With most, with the industry being shut down for a few months, there's not a lot of film choice. So they're looking at potentially putting an eight week delay and also extending the deadline for submission up until the 31st of December, which allows more films a chance to get put in there.
1: I'm calling it now. Tenant will will wipe the board with everything, followed by Trolls.
0: Yeah, I can kind of see that. <laughs> if Tenant does come out this, this side of this year, then yeah, it probably will. But, you know, it'll give pretty much all the films that have been put back, including, we're going to be talking about him later, Wes Anderson's French Dispatch, which has now been shunted towards the back end of the year. That's now going to be within the new release window. Yeah, I'd love to see him get an award. I'd love to see him get the best picture.
1: Okay, in more news, um, I hear that Walter Hill has delivered a 50-page treatment to Sigourney Weaver for a fifth Ripley movie in the Alien franchise.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of things going on with the Alien franchise. I mean, we only reported last week for uh, Ridley Scott where he wants to see the Alien franchise going in future, and it seems that everyone's got their own ideas as to what they want to do with it at this point on. The only drawback with um, the Walter Hill idea is that Sigourney Weaver doesn't want to go back to the character. She's
1: kind of done all she needs to do within that. She She's died. Uh, she was resurrected as a clone. It's it's time, as we said last week, to, to rethink the entire um, Alien franchise, but it's also time uh, Ripley to, to stay dead.
0: Yeah, a Walter Hill script I think could be an interesting...
1: Oh, he's one of the classic 70s uh, thriller directors for me of, of all time.
0: But I kind of do agree with Sigourney Weaver That we don't need to go back to that character There was, there was a time of going back to um, her character When Neil Blomkamp His vision of the film Because he was going to pick up basically after the second film And ignore everything else But that ended up going nowhere And got put on the back burner indefinitely I think now we're f- so far away from that Yeah, I'm, I'm more for where Ridley Scott wants to go with it I want something different I want something new I want new characters and new exploration.
1: And now's the time. Now's the time we're thinking about bringing it back. As Scott himself put it, it needs to re-evolve the franchise, do something different with it. It's a fascinating world. I think we've outstayed our welcome in it, and I don't know what you can do, but I I would always go back to another Alien film, and I would like to go back to something that felt like an Alien film, because recently that hasn't happened.
0: Uh, Speaking of going back to a franchise and doing something new with it, Evil Dead now? which is the title for the next Evil Dead film.
1: There's going to be another Evil Dead? Because it never really took off after the, after the reboot, remake, uh, last part of the
0: series. Well, the, the, the reboot, remake one from Freddy Alvarez, that kind of helped get the interest back so that they could do the TV series Ash vs. the Evil Dead and generate three seasons of Bruce Campbell's character to continue his story. Now, Campbell has confirmed that Lee Cronin, who directed Hole in the Ground, has been handpicked by Raimi to make another Evil Dead film, which won't be a direct sequel to either Raimi's or Alvarez's films, but a new thematically linked feature. So he's basically using the Evil Dead idea as a way to tell different horror stories from different horror directors. I'm interested.
1: There's a lot of good horror coming out of Ireland at the moment because of... of, uh some of the filmmaking initiatives there. It's a real breeding ground for, for horror directors, more so than the UK.
0: Again, like with the Aliens, I think that the Evil Dead franchise has scope to do some fun, interesting things. I mean, Fede Alvarez took the concept of the original films and made it as a brutal, visceral horror, took away the humour and made it really like atmospheric and dark. And I think that that's what they could do. Each director can bring their own touch to it and play with it. Because if you get a comedy director, they can have fun with it. If you get a serious director, they can have they they can do what they want. Quite interested. In it. I've not seen Hole in the Ground, but I've heard. It things. good It is
1: good. I liked it an awful lot. It was uh, as I said, the Irish film industry is doing doing really really well, and that's, that's a great example of 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 an interesting an interesting story that has an identity. And what I mean by that is. It feels like an Irish film. It doesn't feel like they've tried to do a Hollywood blockbuster. And it works very, very well. It was I'm assuming it was quite a low budget. It just has uh, a, a great style to it. And I think the director, I think Lou Cronin is a perfect director to take on Evil Dead.
0: Um, speaking of horrors and remakes and reboots, etc. So David Coop has spent his time in isolation playing about with Bride of Frankenstein.
1: Now, this was announced as part of the uh, much maligned Dark Universe, much maligned because it had to be maligned. It was a, a dreadful start with the Mummy, uh, a, a real Tom Cruise failure, which you don't get very often. And the idea of the Dark Universe that Universal was pushing of all its monster movies got kicked into the can.
0: The whole idea behind the Mummy was let's create a shared universe rather than let's create an interesting film and see where it goes.
1: Yeah, then what other company has done that recently?
0: Hmm. Let me uh, think about
1: that one. Hmm.
0: <laughs> the, the script, which was getting bandied around as part of the Dark Universe, obviously got thrown and ditched. But co-op has sat through this isolation period and gone through all his ideas for it, redrafted the whole script and come up with what he wants the remake of Bride of Frankenstein to be for a more contemporary audience today. And I, I can see it going the way that Bloomhouse seemed to be going with the horror films at the moment like Invisible Man and like we spoke about last week about The Wolfman, that it's going to be a modern-day setting and really set it, like, do a different thing with it and twist it in a different way.
1: I mean, this was the original shared universe, in all honesty. The universal horror movies were all interconnected. Uh, you know, Frankenstein versus Wolfman. Um, you know, there was there was the one with Dracula in. And it was... It, it was the original shared universe. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of up for it. I don't mind the idea of, of a shared universe. The movie was just a bad place to start it, and by trying to yeah. map it out from the get go uh, and tell you that this was going to happen is, is, is it's failing. Uh, apart from the fact it was, it was a lousy film. But I'm interested <laughs> to it. I, I think you know, I'm a massive Frankenstein monster fan. I always like a, a, an interpretation of Franken, story of Frankenstein. Uh, David Keops, a, a great writer. I'm open. To see what he does with Bride of Frankenstein. Uh,
0: final bit of news to round up today. Uh, we love the Paddington films, don't we? We do.
1: You know what? I have to do a, a breakdown series for one of the BBC shows that I'm on. And Paddington was was one of the lockdown favourites I mentioned. That and Paddington too. I think they're classic, fantastic British movies that knows how to treat a character and bring it up to date and treat it with the respect due. I think I think they're fabulous. Paul King directed those.
0: Yeah, and he did a fantastic job, because when, when they got announced, people were so against them. Yeah, Paddington. Like,
1: it's never going to... I'm going to throw myself into the street and protest, they were saying.
0: But once they came out, people talked to them, and word of mouth made sure that the first film grew and grew and grew and grew. And, grew. and they're just charming, fun family love films. It. Absolutely With it. great wit. Well... Sadly, Paul King's going to be stepping away. He's not going to be directing the third film.
1: Oh, that is disappointing because I, I kind of feel that it was Paul King's signature all over it that made them as good as they were. I mean, they they, they had that quintessential British humour um, with a quintessential British casting, you know. And they still had room for for big names to to appear in it. I, th- I think Paul King, how he steered that particular ship, uh, the success is 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 as much down to him as the casting and and the writing on it. It'll be sad to see him go. Is there any announcement who will replace him at this
0: point? Not yet, but he's just confirmed that he's going to be handing the marmalade over to someone else. In his words, at some point you just have to stop. It might be time for somebody else to do a twist on it. I'm trying not to do a third Bear movie, which is a huge, huge mistake. The script is written and ready to go, and King is going to stay on board as a producer.
1: Oh, so he's still guiding the ship.
0: He'll still be a a guiding hand, but he just feels that if you get trapped doing... Paddington films for the rest of your career then you're not going to really do yourself any favours so it gives a chance for someone else to come on board maybe play something different with it try a different approach with him still in the background going just to make it feel thematically correct with the script being written I imagine that'll be going into green light pretty soon we'll let you know when we know and that is the news
1: so over the last couple of weeks, because we've not been out reviewing, uh, we've not been able to offer some reviews, we've, we've done things a little bit different. One of the things that we've been doing in lockdown is giving Andy the challenge to catch up with a whole list of films that he's not had a chance to see, never saw in the cinema. So I get to choose, and I think I've kept you pretty much on your toes. Yeah. And the film I chose... For Andy, over the last week was a 2010 crime thriller, co-written, directed, and starring Ben Affleck, and that was *The Town*. People get up every day, tell themselves they're gonna change their lives. They never do. I'm
0: gonna change mine. I'm done. You're done. It's people I can't let you walk away from. You're gonna do what I ask. You grew up right here. Same rules that I did. Find me a prince so
1: I can grab one of these guys. I'm
0: leaving. Get that in your hey, head! Move! Move!
1: The town, Ridded ours. Andy, what did you think of the town?
0: Well, before I say what I thought about it, a quick background to the town. It's adapted from the novel Prince of Thieves by Chuck Hogan. And the story focuses on four lifelong friends who have been have raised and been brought up in a life of crime as, like, bank robbers, heist pullers, etc. And the pulling off one last big bank job. Things get complicated when they take a hostage and it complicates things more when they discover that that hostage lives local to the gang and so could possibly identify them. And Affleck's character basically checks out to tr- see how much she actually recognises and starts to get a bit of a rapport and a relationship with her. As for what I thought about it, we spoke last last week about Goodwill Hunting and about how Matt Damon... Like with his script with Ben Affleck on there, and how they both worked really well, and they showcased how they're more than just pretty boys. This is an example of Affleck confidently directing.
1: He does, doesn't he? He really, you know, Ben Affleck's got a gets a lot of kicking uh, unfairly, in my opinion. I think he's a, he's a decent actor. In this pro, in this film proved he's a, he can be a great actor. I think he's turned into a, into a fantastic director. Let's not forget Gone Baby Gone, which was his first one, which is stunning. Also against the backdrop of, of Boston, the town that him and uh, Matt Damon came from. Yeah. This film gave him his chops. It's, you could use the term scorsese to a degree and, and not feel fraudulent in saying that. This is Ben Affleck or any director working at the top of their game. It's a, it's a fantastic film. I love a heist okay. a movie. And this I is a perfect it. heist movie.
0: I compare it less to a Scorsese and more to a Michael Mann. Oh,
1: yeah, I can see that as well. I think it's a d- distant cousin of, of Michael Mann.
0: He gets good performances from all the cast. I mean, Jeremy Renner's in there. Absolutely brilliant. He's playing what should be an unlikable character. He's a, he's a criminal. He's a thug. The whole gang of them are criminals. But you care for them within the first 15 minutes. You care for these criminals who just want to do that last job. And get out of the system that they they've been raised in. It's solidly written. It doesn't waste any time. Nothing feels superfluous about it. And like I say, it's confidently directed. Even the action, as things start to go wrong and escalate, and another job starts up, and it just it it just turns into a whole whirlwind of different events going on. And I've got to give a mention to uh, Pete Postlethwaite. This was his last film, wasn't it? Yeah. Who always turns up. In really horrible, nasty, bad guy kind of roles, despite the fact he looks like the most unassuming person that you could ever get, and he plays a real nasty piece of work in this film.
1: From from all the people I know who would work with Pete Postlewaite and, and, and knew him, he was supposed to be a charming, lovely, lovely guy. And yeah, he was—he's uh, he's a dire human being in this. I mean, it's a great cast. I mean, not only have you say Pete Postlewaite, then Affleck himself, uh, Rebecca Hall, who I think is a fantastic actor. Uh, I don't see her on screen no. enough. Uh, John Hamm, who was still uh, at that point still big on Mad Men, and Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner was was still a kind of a, an up and coming name. He delivers, uh, I, I think, almost scene stealing performance, and at uh, times, and he doesn't. Could almost literally take over the take over the who you who you who
0: you vote uh, for <laughs> yeah even though
1: he's he's uh, the antithesis in in a lot of ways of Ben Affleck's character uh, and Jeremy Renner just pulls it back he doesn't it could be one of those roles where he, he could literally take over the screen uh, and and chomp it up and doesn't but he has that he has that sense he's the brooding um, almost firecracker violence that that inhibits his character is always there. This was, this was kind of your real introduction to, to Renault and sort of the, the actor he's become. Great, great cast. Let's not uh, forget uh, Blake Lively. Uh, Chris Cooper's in there. Uh, Titus Welliver. It's a fantastic, fantastic film. I absolutely love it. Uh, and as we said, I think people knock Ben Affleck. For, he did make some, some poor choices as a, as a young up-and-coming actor. But as a director, he's made some fantastic choices.
0: Like, going back to Jeremy Renner, I always feel it's a shame that Renner is so underappreciated. Yeah,
1: he's not a leading man for me, Renner, though.
0: Even in, even in the Avengers films, Hawkeye ends up being, like, everyone like, looks at Hawkeye, it's like, oh, what does he do? He just fires arrows. When he jumped into the Bourne franchise, when they tried that Bourne spin-off, I don't think that got the recognition that it deserved, because everyone was, oh, well, he's no Matt Damon. It's like, well, he's not. He's Jeremy Renner. He's going to do a different kind of thing. And I've got a lot every time that I see him in a film, I always find that he's really engaging.
1: And, he's a great screen presence. He really and, is.
0: And this is the perfect example to turn around and go, "This guy needs the respect. When he popped up in the Mission Impossible franchise, people thought that he never turned up again because he was rubbish. No, he didn't turn up again because scheduling conflicts, and he's always had that door left open for him to return. I'd love to see him get back to the Mission Impossible franchise and become another member of that cast.
1: He's not a leading man for me, Jerry Moreno. And I think he's, he has the qualities of a leading man. I think he's a, he's a character actor who looks like a movie star. Yeah. And therefore he's got that ability to, to breathe life into sometimes supporting characters and secondary characters. Um, I don't think he's one of those actors where where the audience buy into him as a leading man. There's just that he's got an an edgy quality to him, and that's okay. You don't have to be a leading man. I think Ben Affleck's a leading man and has that has that star quality. But I think Renner has that the the acting quality that that gives him that good makes him very strong in supporting roles. And and this is not as this is not say this isn't a supporting role. It's a key role to this film. Um, it's fantastic. I, I you know, I, I'd like to spend more time in this world. I, th- I thought it was that good. It kind of almost ties in in a lot of ways with with other films where where Boston is a supporting character. Yeah. Uh, the Departed, Mystic River. Um, you know, in fact, Affleck's Gone Baby Gone. Boston is is a is a great crime based city to do that. It's it's a good a uh, subgenre it's got the accents it's got the look of the look of the city it's got an atmosphere to it the way that all gangster movies used to be chicago boston has that has that quality in this i think it's i think it's great and as we said affleck is 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 confident in his directing with this film uh he, he's skillful the, the action sequences work i'm always i'm always uh, a sucker for a good heist movie
0: you, you look at this film and you think to yourself Imagine if Affleck had a got to make his Batman film.
1: Yeah, I've I, you know, I've got nothing against him being Batman. Again, there was an outcry over Affleck. Why? I don't know being Batman, because he, he looks like Bruce Wayne. He's probably the, the first actor for me that looks like Bruce Wayne. If they'd not grade the temples, absolutely perfect Bruce Wayne. Yeah. He's got the look of Batman. I never quite got the outcry, but I never quite understand fanboys.
0: No, we never will. Uh, But, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed The Town. It's definitely one of the stronger ones that I've watched in recent weeks. And um, it is one that I will be going back to rewatch again at some point now that I've experienced it for the first time.
1: Well, because we're living in a a lockdown world and there's so much bad news out there daily and we're living in turbulent times, I I had to give a a, a lot of consideration for the next film, for your uh, viewing pleasure. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to pull back. I'm not going to send you down a dark alley into some because <laughs> I was looking at War Horse and, and for that film I cried like a little girl for two hours. <laughs> and I don't want, I don't want to inflict that on you. So I'm going to give you a film that that definitely made a nudge in the states, but didn't do so much over here. It it gave Reese Witherspoon her career basically, and that film is Election.
0: Is that the Matthew
1: Broderick. It will be one? indeed. Yes. I think, okay. I think you'll enjoy it. I'd be surprised if you don't, but hey, let's wait until next week to discover. That's Andy's film rundown for next week. So, the other thing we've been doing, other than reviewing the latest films, is we've been taking deep dives. And this week, we decided on a film that I know that Andy loves and, and he knows I love because we're both massive fans of Wes Anderson. And that film is 19, I can't believe it came out in 1998. It, and I, it feels <laughs> like I watched it yesterday because it still feels fresh is Rushmore.
0: I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they?
1: Rushmore Academy's wealthiest alumnus has just met the woman of his dreams. I'm in love with her. There's only one problem. I was in love with her first. This February, the battle begins.
0: You know, you and Helen deserve each other. You're both little children. I was gonna try and have that tree over there fall on you. War does funny things to men. Rushmore.
1: Now, this was the film for, for me where Wes Anderson really started to develop the style after his first film, Bottle Rocket. It stars uh, Jason Schwartzman in his film debut as Mike, who's an eccentric teenager, uh, and his friendship with a rich industrialist, uh, played by Bill Murray, called Herman Bloom, and their love of a common elementary school teacher, Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams, who, up until this film, we'd not seen much of before, uh, co-written by Anderson and Owen Wilson. It launched the careers of Anderson, Schwartzman, uh, pushed Owen Wilson uh, into not only being a star, but into being a writer. It's a fantastic film that we both love. Why do we love this film, Andy?
0: When I was sat and re this over the past week, within the first five minutes, I found myself chuckling at the wit and loving the use of music and appreciating the framing. This film is an utter joy because of the skewed universe in which Anderson sets his films. And apparently the this, this skewed reality that this feels like it's set in was described by Anderson himself as slightly heightened like a Roll Dahl novel. And it was an idea that him and Owen Wilson had come up with, that all of the films like that they work on should have this kind of approach that it's almost real, but it's not quite, and it's a bit nonsensical at the same time. Wilson up, dri- drew on his own experiences of being kicked out of school in the 10th grade for part of the script. And I think that's what makes it work is that Jason Schwartzman is Wes Anderson. Yeah, I can see that. Owen Wilson's ideas of like what he went through and their own like public school and private school kind of experiences as well were all put into this film. And they always say, write about what you know. And this is the film that they clearly were writing about their own experiences and giving them this skewed little twist. And that's why it feels, it feels so natural. It feels so true, whilst also being a bit wild and bizarre.
1: Max Fisher's a fantastic character, isn't he? He's, he's oh, he's amazing. old, he's, going on 45.
0: He's the worst student at Rushmore Private School because he spends all of his time in extracurricular activities so he's got the enthusiasm to get involved in this, that, the other. He does productions. He writes productions for the stage based on films that are completely over the top and nonsensical, but that absolutely lauded by the whole community. And he's such a quirky character. He's I, mean, I know that Anderson said that he did make Max Fisher based on him except not as shy because Wes Anderson's apparently quite uh, shy and reserved whereas Max is not shy about anything. He will talk to anyone and that's how he strikes the relationship up with Herman, uh, played by Bill Murray, and they become bonding friends which is a bit bizarre to have like a bloke in his 40s suddenly being friends with a 15-year-old boy. But that's a Wes Anderson kind of world. He's such a charming character, a great creation that you, you kind of feel sorry for, you pity, but you'd also think, you do this unto yourself, mate. You're not you're not helping yourself at all. Marvellous character. I
1: think you described it best when you said this film is a joy. And it is a joy. I remember the first time I saw it being absolutely blown away. Falling in love with Rushmore as a film, falling in love with, with the Max Fisher character, the style, the energy, the the framing, all grew uh, and developed through Anderson's uh, later films, the, the relationship with with uh, Bill Murray. This was Bill Murray's first role. He'd been a fan of Bottle Rocket, uh, and did this for for much lower cost than he, he, he normally would do. Um, this was the kind of uh, proto Wes Anderson film. Bottle Rocket's an interesting film. N- looking back on it, and I saw it recently, and I and I and I've got a lot of love for Bottle Rocket. Owen Wilson's fantastic in it. It yeah. doesn't feel like the Wes Anderson films that, that we know now. And to some extent, neither does Rushmore. This was a kind of, a, shall we say, a work in progress for, for the style that, that is clearly now a Wes Anderson style.
0: Yeah, his colour palettes that he developed in later years isn't present yet. His symmetrical framing is kind of present, but not quite as refined and his his, his tracking of camera motion from like one point and then a quick swift pan is almost there, but not as fluid as it becomes in later films. But it's all kind of, it's like a testing ground that works. And it's his use of music. This is the film in which his use of music became key to the film. I mean, you've got Unit 4 Plus 2, The Creation, Kinks, John Lennon, Cat Stevens, The Faces, and... In my favourite scene of the whole film, a brilliant use of the Who's A Quick One While He's Away. Yeah. With the like get like basically them him and Bill Murray fighting and plotting revenge on each other. And it's that slow motion sequence as the lift door opens and he walks out, takes the gun out of his mouth and sticks it on the wall. And that was the point when I first watched the film that I was like, I love this film. I love this director. And it was the time when I rewatched it this week and I went, and I really do love this director, and I really do love this film.
1: I, I'm a massive, massive Wes Anderson film, and exactly this film this film sold me on on, on the rest of his career. Uh, it created the relationship between him uh, and Bill Murray. Bill Murray's been in every single Wes Anderson film since. The, the style of the film, uh, the unique cinematography that, that uh, when, uh, Wes Anderson's become known for started here, there's a sense of color that he uses as as part of the heightening the, the reality. The, the little montage sequence at the beginning, where we're introduced to uh, <laughs> uh, to Max, is almost like French New Wave filmmaking. There's there's so much going on to this, as, as well as being a, a, a very simple film about a relationship. It, it's it's an absolutely beautiful film. I, I bought the soundtrack when it came out. I loved it that much. You, you're right. The, the way that, that Anderson uses music and, and, use, yeah. and use odd choices of pop songs, especially sort of yeah. British invasion stuff. It, it's it's fantastic. And in, in, in every way, as I say, apart from being a proto Wes Anderson film, it, it stands on its own. Um, it stands within the reality that, that Wes Anderson's created. It's nicely off kilter. It feels like a cult film, but I think it's more than that. I think there's more going on for something. Um I, I can't I can't say enough about it without without bursting into tears and, and shouting I love you at <laughs> it.
0: I mean I, I love the dialogue exchanges, I love the subtle wit within them. I mean, you've got um Magnus, the Scottish kid, like saying, Why didn't you just it's off Fisher, your dotty wee skid mark, and Max replying with, Is that Latin? <laughs> and <laughs> things like that just just make me crease whenever I watch it. And even though I've watched this film at least once every year, I regularly go back to it. I've never grown tired of it, and I still find myself laughing. Bill Murray is fantastic in it. Apparently, they had storyboards for what he was supposed to do, but he was given a lot of freedom to just improvise on set. And so things like him intercepting some kids playing basketball and missing the shot were just in there because it's Bill Murray. Just let him do it. Absolutely brilliant. And I mean, I've mentioned the plays, but let's be honest, you will never see a better interpretation of Serpico than Max Fisher's interpretation of Serpico with people dressed up as nuns and everything else, absolutely brilliant.
1: Did you ever see the, uh, or did you ever get the Criterion Collection?
0: I've not, no. Um, and which
1: I, I have, which has got the audio commentary by by Anderson and, and and Owen Wilson. But there is a fantastic. I think they were used for the MTV Awards. They were, there was the um, Max Fisher's theatrical adaptions of Armageddon, The Truman Show. <laughs> and out of sight and they were the uh, the the dvd extras on it and it was you know all uh, that's how much i love this film i had i knew once i'd seen it i had to own it because i would go back to it time and time again uh it's it's people say and you must get this and i'm sure our, our, our listeners get this why do why do you go out and buy movies or you know why do you collect movies the same way that we listen to songs over and over again. They take you back to a time when you first heard it or, in this case, you first saw it. They they give you a memory. They give you an emotional push. Everything about the first time I, I saw Rushmore, I can tell you where I saw it, I walked away and and fell in love with this, this, this film, and I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I feel that with every Wes Anderson film. I have so much love for for everything that he does. I have I have least favourites, I have favourites, but I'm never disappointed by a, by a Wes Anderson film.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, this was his first film that he not only directed and wrote, but was also producer. Well, he was an executive producer on this. Every one of his films after that, he had full control over. It's good that the industry will fund these films that maybe won't be hugely profitable just to let a director have their creative vision and... Have fun. I would hate to see someone like Wes Anderson get given 150 million and then get walked over by a studio. Uh,
1: th- that's not going to happen to a degree. Uh, no, I think. I think the fact that he he is such a independent filmmaker at heart, you know, th- a, a big studio wouldn't have made made Budapest Hotel. It just just wouldn't. It's just his style.
0: Yeah, you know, B- Budapest Hotel, which is the most Wes Anderson looking film that Wes Anderson's ever made. Uh, it's pure Wes Anderson, everything from start to finish. Low budget of $25 million and raked in almost $200 million. So that was his most successful film. Isle of Dogs, we don't know how much it cost to make, but what a film that was. I love Wes Anderson. I've loved every one of them. And whenever one of his films come out, it's always going to be within my top three films of the year that it comes out. I will always go back to a Wes Anderson film and still love it and still fall like for all the beats and all the rhythms throughout it. And and the announcement of a, of a Wes Anderson film coming out, I just start salivating because I know that I've got something to look forward to.
1: Just before we wrap this up, a quick kudos to Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, as you has done some very trashy films, but let's not forget that Owen Wilson is a is a great writer. Not only uh, co-wrote this, he co-wrote Royal Tenenbaums. You know his his career is interlinked with Wes Anderson's. I'd like to see them do more more together again. Uh, I've got a lot of love for, for for Owen Wilson. Forget about some of the films where it aren't so great. But I, you know, I think I think Wes Anderson is um, Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson's relationship is, is is fantastic. I'd like to see them write together much more. Yeah. If you want to see a film that is pure joy, that will will make you smile, make you cry, make you laugh, and and also make you sing, because you will not leave the viewing without having uh, the face of are in your head, forever. <laughs> Uh, and that was Rushmore. And that's it for another show. If you if you like us, uh, you can subscribe, uh, leave a review. That's great. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so
0: at... Twitter, at Film File UK.
1: But before we go, and we do this every week, we tell you what we've been listening to, loving, enjoying, playing, just having a darn good time. In fact, with such a darn good time, we've, defi- we've decided to call it our weekly neat thing.
0: Andy, do you have this week's neat thing? Now, my neat thing this week, I mean, I've, I've been spending a lot of time playing video games over the past week. I've mostly been playing Final Fantasy VII Remake, which, wow, that's great. But that's not a neat thing. My neat thing is Epic Games on the PC. Epic Games Store is a distribution service from Epic who do things like Fortnite, etc. Ignore the Fortnite. Each week, they've been giving away one or two freebies And the freebies over the past few weeks have included Civilization VI, Grand Theft Auto V, Overcooked, Borderlands, and this week is Ark. And despite the fact I've got most of these already on Steam, I can't help but think that this is great that they are giving away such high-profile games. Civilization VI, what a great game. If you love your strategy games and you love your Civ ones, this is the most refined Civilization game that's been. Grand Theft Auto, it might be years old now. But Grand Theft Auto V still has a huge, huge online presence. So they are throwing games out there for people to grab for free. And all you have to do is download download the Epic Games client. And I know it's not the best of clients. Hopefully, they'll refine it at some point. And just keep a lookout every Friday for when they change that free game. And then just click to add it into your library. And it's there forever. Marvellous giveaways. A lot of them multiplayer. So while you're locked down, you can at least play online with some mates. And no cost, what's not to love?
1: I would like to say what mine was nearly a game, but I've not played it. I, I the anticipation I have for the Last of Us Part Two is is just epic, and the reviews <laughs> have started to come in, and they are all five star reviews I've seen so far. Uh, I'm hoping that somebody from Sony will be listening to this and decide one day to to throw free stuff at us because we would we would review it. Trust me,
0: we're happy to do an episode called Game File if you want. Yes, we don't mind at all.
1: <laughs> just throw stuff at us. We will take it. Uh, but no, my neat thing is uh, it's a documentary that's on Amazon Prime, and it comes in light of us talking about the release of the Snyder Cut, and that's Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Have you had a chance to see it yet, Andy? I've not, No. Okay, so we know that, that back in... Uh, there was a Fantastic Four movie released by... Uh, or, should I say, not released by Roger Corman. And ex- this documentary explores through extensive interviews with, with cast and the crew, directed uh, the circumstances surrounding this, this lost... Uh, I would say cult classic, but it's not even a classic. So the idea was is that Marvel had sold the rights to a lot of theirs. This is pre-MCU... Uh, a lot of their big properties to to various people, and this was at the point when superhero movies were were not what they they are today. Marvel really did badly with with the, with the films that they they were they were uh, they were selling on their characters. there had been a, the canons, uh, Captain America and Punisher, which hadn't done particularly well. Spider Man had been muted at on and off including a, a, a Canon Films looking at a, a particular low-budget one which went from everything from Peter Parker not putting on the costume until the last five minutes because the budget wasn't there. The Fantastic Four, on the other hand, ended up in a, in a strange situation where a film actually got made. So it features the origin of the Fantastic Four and the team's first battle with, with Doctor Doom. It was uh, uh, executively produced by uh, Roger Corman and burned... Aikingo was a I think it did never ending story before that. It seems from from watching this film that the idea was that the film would uh, had to be made because the rights would have reverted back. And so the idea was that that uh they opted to produce a super low budget fantastic Four film just so they could return the, turn the rights. And it was done for almost a million dollar budget which if you think of of how much a uh, a superhero movie costs you know you don't even get tv commercials nowadays which which mm-hmm. can cost uh, cost a, a million even though the the cast and the crew worked really really hard to to elevate it into something that it would never be never got a release and this is this film is a story of that so we talk about release the snyder cut i want to see the release of, of the fantastic four cut and i would and i would do it for free if somebody uh either through kickstarter or through, um, uh, through some sort of funding network, I would go back and do the effects work using today's special effects and recut it if I could get hold of the uh, of a print that was a work print and I would release the unseen Fantastic Four because I think it would make a fortune on, on some sort <laughs> of uh, home platform release. The interesting thing about this film is uh, even though the cast and the crew didn't know this film would never be released, they worked really, really hard, a true story of underdogs, to to try and get get this movie out there. It looks cheap because it is cheap, but you know what? It's probably closer to the Fantastic Four than the 20th Century Fox, Tim Story version, uh, and let alone the, the Josh Trank version. I think this is the closest we've got to a pure Fantastic Four film then we we probably will get won't get until MCU do their version of it because at least they try to do something that felt like a Fantastic Four movie without any any serious budget with almost childish special effects. But people who behind this film love this film. If you've not got a chance and it's on Amazon Prime, go and see Doom the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Fantastic. Indeed. And that's it for another week. Uh, we'll be back hopefully within the next week to uh, give you another deep dive to see what Andy's thought of uh, elected. In the meantime, war does funny things to them.